Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today I have no grand theme or any one single point. I simply want to walk through John 1, 1 to 18. This is certainly an important and unique text. We can safely put it in the New Testament top five. It's a beautiful passage, but also very controversial. And so much so that the finest of fine points have been made on certain words, the exact words that John was employing. If what John says in the very first verse then is true, every other religious claim is by definition false. So let's dive in. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's one verse, but three distinct phrases. And volumes have been written about this one verse, so I must be mercilessly succinct. The Greek word here that we translate word is logos. You may have heard that word before, logos. It it, uh, it's the root word from where we get logic, right? Or the study of something, theology, biology, etc. It's also a word that was used by some non-Christians at the time running around in John's circles. They're called the Gnostics, or you may have heard of Gnosticism. And they taught that the Logos was this impersonal deity, unknowable source of power. And so it's likely that what John was trying to do right at the outset, it's like uh, in the first round of a boxing match. I mean, he, he lands a hard jab right to the face. He's saying, uh-uh, you talk about the Logos being an impersonal God. No, the Logos is the personal known God of the Hebrews. And therefore, he is depriving the Gnostics of using it for their false gods. And yes, by the way, the Gnostics would have been far, uh, far, would have been very happy to absorb Christianity into their worldview, and Gnostics surround us still to this uh, day. They don't call themselves that, of course. Uh, New Agers, something like that. But Gnosticism is still very much alive and well. Now, notice the clear reference to Genesis. Right? Both books begin in the beginning. That was not an accident. John is placing the Logos, as of yet undefined, at the beginning. While the Logos, uh, what the Logos is in this first phrase is a little debated. For example, some would say that when John writes, in the beginning was the Logos, or the word, he is referencing uh, God's plan, okay, or God's will uh, of what he will do. Others say that the word logos here is a clear reference to Christ even in that first phrase, and I would tend to agree. The third phrase, uh, that he is God, now puts the logos on par with God. So we'll break down the second and third phrases. The logos was with God, and the logos was God. And verse 14, by the way, to jump ahead, gives us the definitive answer as to who or what this word is. It is Jesus Christ himself, because 
the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Um, So to briefly note the most controversial aspect of this phrase or this verse, those who deny the deity of Christ but still want to be called Christians Okay, these were Arians in the uh, 3rd century or so, 4th century, and then Jehovah's Witnesses today or Oneness Pentecostals today. Um, They must deal with this verse. Okay, this verse is so clear that Jesus is God that they all must deal with this verse. I just want to give you a a quick example of how this verse is dealt with because it seems pretty clear to us that John is saying that Jesus is God, right? Um, it gets a little complicated, and there are debates around whether the article A should be employed. So for those of you who remember gra- grammar school, remember articles, okay, A is a grammar. In other words, should the third phrase of this verse read, and the word was God, as you heard it today, or should it read, as the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible read, uh, say it, and the word was a God. Big difference, right? Difference between the deity of Christ and not. And I have some bad news for you. The Greek, it could go either way. It is, uh, the article is assumed. It's not there in the Greek. So you could technically say, and the word was a God. The problem with that is that if you consistently translated the word for God, theos, in that manner every single time, then every time you come across the word God, clearly referencing, for example, God the Father, the God in the Old Testament, it would read a God. And not even the Jehovah's Witnesses would want to do that, right? They wouldn't want to say a God said to Moses, a God, you know, parted the seas, right? And so it's weird that in that one place, in that one verse where Jesus is referenced as deity, they use the article, but they wouldn't do it anywhere else. So in case you ever come across that article, if someone comes uh, knocking on your door, now you know what to say, okay? And so therefore, the best translation of this all-important third phrase of the first verse is, the word was God. Now, the bottom line is that if that is true, if, and if the word is Christ, which is made clear in verse 14, then that means that Jesus was God. So when Jesus speaks, he speaks for God to the exclusion of all other would-be, lowercase g, gods. Now, verse 2 repeats this phrase, he was in the beginning with God. Now, right here, we already have in two sentences a binity. Okay, we're not to Trinity yet. Okay, a binity, that is two distinct persons in the Godhead. There is a clear distinction here between logos and theos. Just as, for example, when I'm with Amanda, We're two distinct people, and yet we are together, right? Now, in verse 3, the subject remains the logos, and another controversial claim... See, I'm trying to point out all the controversies so you stay interested, okay? Another controversial claim is made that, in truth, many Christians probably do not fully appreciate. 
John writes, all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. Now that's a reference not to God the Father, but to the Logos. And so this squarely puts Jesus not only at the creation, but really maybe Jesus is a kind of lens or prism through which the creation is uh, is created, right? Because it says um, that, uh, I want to read it again, all things came into being through him. Well, we tend to think of God the Father as the creator, but maybe this means that God the Father understood that creation itself would find its high point, its apex, in man, and the redemption of man through Christ. So this at least means that Jesus is not part of the creation, okay, not part of the creation, but the creator himself. And the vast majority of heresies in the early church were all centered on this basic idea. Every early heresy tried to maintain that Jesus was part of the creation, and the Christian church, the Orthodox Christian church, said, no, he and the creator are one. What verse did they appeal to? John 1.1, or 1.3, as we're now in verse 3. The language that follows now is quite beautiful, because we're, we're, we're leaving sort of logistics behind, okay? And now we're talking about design and meaning. Why did God create? What did it accomplish? What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So the Logos is God bringing light and life into the world. Yes, the world can be a dark place sometimes, full of people of bad intention. Sometimes it seems as though evil people have won the day, but God says that's not true. The light has come into the world, and in that light we will find life. So in that one sentence, we find the mission of the church as well. Right, which is to draw people out of the darkness and into the light. What comes next is a, an excursus about John the Baptist. I think maybe John the author wanted his hearers who maybe didn't know all the details, didn't have the other gospels in front of them, they wanted to know, reference this very famous person called John the Baptist as a way of saying, yes, John the Baptist existed, but he actually pointed to Christ. And I think the author John is telling us in speaking about John the Baptist that his purpose is our own. We are to testify to the light. Now verse 9 is an explicitly Christmas verse. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Now this might reference the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? We just talked about John the Baptist and John the Baptist, his baptism of Jesus, which we'll talk about next week, that is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So it could be, hey, the, the light of the world is coming onto the scene in John the Baptist. But it certainly could reference the Christmas story. It could be both. Christ is coming into the world. He is making himself known. And this is an interesting phrase, 
the light which enlightens everyone. You see, anytime you have a phrase in the Bible where it talks about everyone, that's, that's going to be a controversial phrase. People are going to key on that to try to prove one point or another. So a question for us would be, um, everyone has not heard of Jesus, so how can the Bible say everyone is enlightened by him? And I would say that if we believe in a final judgment, we believe that all will indeed be enlightened by Jesus. That is, all will learn of the lordship of Christ. All will learn of the lordship of Christ. The Bible says every knee will bend at the coming of Christ. Now John then focuses on the earthly ministry of Jesus and the irony and even the cruelty of the creator of the world being unknown by the world. He was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. It's almost comical. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. It was the mission of Jesus then not to be loved and praised, although he was loved and praised by many, but ultimately to be hated and crucified. It was through the world hating him that the love of God could be more fully put on display. And using the hate of those Few worldly foes, God brought love to billions who would seek the true Christ and follow in his footsteps. After all, John writes, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Yes, to follow Christ is to be born of God himself. While we will always be part of the creation, God allows us to be born of him, which opens the gates of heaven for us. If we are born of God, then we are his children. If we are his children, then we are much more than mere meat machines. We are not just glorified apes or stardust. We are known and we are loved. We matter because we are born of God. I mentioned earlier we would revisit the theme of Logos, and we do so here in verse 14. And the Logos became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. In case there was any doubt then just who this word was, John makes it clear. The word is Christ, who became flesh and lived on our behalf. So to repeat the point, to know Christ is to know God. And that means that if Jesus really was God, his exclusive claims make all other competing claims false on their face. So when we say Christ is the reason for the season... We're saying no less than that. Now the prologue concludes with more words about John's testimony, John the Baptist's testimony, and a reminder that Moses gives the law, and from Christ we receive grace and truth. We are reminded that if we want to know about God, we can learn of him through Christ. He writes, 
No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. If we believe that, it should strengthen our resolve to carry out the mission. For those who do not know Christ cannot know God. It should also give us that much more reassurance that being a follower of God unites us to our Creator. A Creator who loves us and has saved us. Amen.